0: Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early-stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc.
1: thanks Seth so much for joining us today. Can you please just start off by giving us a brief intro on yourself in 50 years?
0: Sure yeah and thanks Chaz and, and Jess for having me. Um, so my background uh, was actually in the world of nonprofits and, and politics so I was sort of always on an impact bent from a very young age, uh, largely inspired by my mother um, she she would always do small things when I was a kid that felt like a big deal to a ten year old like if she thought a law was unjust she'd uh, get our neighbors together to write our local congresswoman. Um, or, you know, if she ever saw someone cutting line at the supermarket, she'd march over and say, excuse me, I saw that this person was in front of you, uh, which I thought was super cool. Um, and, uh, then when I was 12, we were uh, living in a house that was uh, powered by propane gas. And there was a, uh, a leak and a spark and explosion. And, and she was in the house at the time and got tossed up and at the ceiling at the floor and, uh, long, Story short, was was uh, permanently disabled uh, after that. Was left with nerve damage and brain damage, and couldn't really do the things she used to do before. And so that would make her sad, and it would make me sad. And so I started to do those things for her. Um, I would write the letters to our local congresswoman. I would stop the people from cutting in line, and it cheered her up, cheered me up. Problem solved. Uh, And then I was probably 15 or so. I realized that there were you know hundreds of millions of people in the world who are in a similar sort of situation um, uh, uh, to her in that they were faced with injustice, but couldn't do anything about it themselves. Um, And I basically decided I wanted to be their proxy like I was her proxy. And uh, at that time, I had no notion of using capital markets or technology to solve big problems. And so did what most kids who want to do good do, which is I started volunteering for nonprofits. I started working in politics as soon as I could, helped run campaigns for people running for Senate and Congress and worked for the current governor of uh, Connecticut. Ned Lamont worked for Barack Obama on his first campaign. Um, it, from day one, got super frustrated with the technology tools used uh, in that space and felt that every cause I cared about was being held back by by crappy tech. Uh, and after years of complaining about it, annoyed everyone in my life, started to hear people say, why don't you fix it? And so thought that that was actually a pretty good idea. Uh, built a tool with some friends. That tool very accidentally became a startup Um, We raised some money, had no idea what to do with that money, fiercely started looking for mentors, uh, got connected with this guy named Michael Seibel, uh, who actually had a background in politics himself and then went into tech, founded Twitch and some other companies and is now actually the CEO of Y Combinator. He told us about YC, we applied, got in. By the end of that program, we had some of the largest nonprofits in the country paying us a lot of money, so we were able to raise a few million dollars more. And a couple things happened. I got exposed to the speed and the scale of Silicon Valley. And it was just it was just mind blowing to me. Uh, that The idea that you could go from having an uh, idea on a paper to impacting hundreds of millions of lives in a couple years um, was spellbounding. Um, obviously politics has scale, but it does not have speed. Things just take a really, really long time. Um, but on the flip side, I started to get a little bit disillusioned with the types of things people in Silicon Valley were focusing on. Um, you know, I would often meet a, a brilliant Uh, machine learning engineer and you'd ask her what she was working on and it would essentially come down to squeezing a a few more fractions of a cent out of an ad impression or something like that Um, or I, I once met a entrepreneur who had sold his previous company for hundreds of millions of dollars and was planning on starting something new and I asked him what his idea was and it was essentially selling custom sneakers online and those sorts of stories were just so depressing to me because it was so clear that people here had the potential to solve really big problems, but many people just weren't focusing on those things. Um, And in trying to dig into why that was, one of the things that we realized was that there wasn't really that much capital available for entrepreneurs um, that wanted to use technology entrepreneurship to solve big societal or environmental problems. And, And those entrepreneurs were basically forced to choose between either raising from impact investors who were values aligned, but, had no idea how to help them grow their companies, or from Sandhill Road, uh, where there's a lot of talent that could help them grow their companies, but at the end of the day, those VCs, you know, typically care about cash on cash returns and nothing else. And so I um, started talking about this with my partner, uh, Ella, and Made, and decided that uh, we could solve that problem. And so we started 50 years, uh, almost exactly five years ago today, to uh, support entrepreneurs that are using technology to both make a ton of money and solve the problems and we've been doing it ever since
1: What an amazing story and I love how you've Throughout your life constantly been acting as a proxy for others to relay impact What was it for you about startup land or technology entrepreneurship in a particular? That made you feel like this was the avenue to drive the most impact
0: so I think Part of it was just the ability for technology to scale fast. That was just absolutely spellbinding to me. Um, Another part of it was the culture of uh, entrepreneurship. So, you know, in politics, it's a very zero-sum world. Um, There's, you know, literally only... 50 governorships. <laughs> uh, each of those governors can hire a certain number of staff. There's a limited number of senators and congresspeople, and each of those people can hire a limited number of staff. And, and there's the sense in Washington that power is very finite. And in fact, it probably is finite in Washington. And what this means is that the culture of the place is, is pretty nasty. People uh, stab each other's back, they step on each other's heads to get ahead. Um, and and it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel great. You can sort of sense that in that world. Um, and then getting exposed to the world of entrepreneurship, where it's not at all zero sum, right? The 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 very idea of Silicon Valley is that you can you can grow the pie. Um, and when I came here, I would meet entrepreneurs who were collaborating with the CEOs of their direct competitors because they felt like by collaborating they could increase the size of their industry and therefore both benefit. Um, and this was, I think, just personally way more fulfilling of a world to work in. And so it was really a combination of Seeing that technology entrepreneurship has the potential to solve the problems that I've cared about for a long time much faster Potentially than politics and also it's just being a way nicer place to work
1: Yeah, I think the other layer of that may be entrepreneurship is a way to increase the number of access points for regular people who aren't politicians to make an impact the next question is Following off that, why venture capital for you? Why is venture capital the avenue that you've now chosen to drive impact?
0: Yeah, so um, it's, it's very much so a scratch own itch story. Um, you know, when I started my startup, it was because I was really frustrated by the tools available uh, on the campaigns I worked on and felt like the causes I cared about were being held back. And when I started 50 years, it was almost the exact same story. When we raised money, for my startup, um, we had to go through that uh, dilemma of of either choosing between um, the investors that genuinely cared about our social mission uh, or investors that could help us build our business right so you know we had every intention of building a billion dollar company, but the the thing that really woke us up early every morning and kept us in the office late every night was the impact that we thought we could have on the world by building great tools for great organizations right that were that were trying to change the civic system for the better. Um, and, and, and so we really saw those two things as equals, right? The mission of the company and the, and the business model of the company were kind of equals. But when we talked to investors, we found that we had to choose one bucket or the other, either investors that genuinely cared about that mission uh, these are the impact investors or investors that can actually help us build our business. This is the Sand Hill Road type, and Sand Hill Road a stand in for, of course, you know, m- many other types of VCs as well. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating. And you know, I, I would, I met a lot of other entrepreneurs, and I, I, you know, I'll say largely millennial entrepreneurs, though not exclusively, who were also building businesses that they had every intention of built of building into five, ten, fifty, hundred billion dollar companies, um, but. But we're doing that because it seemed like the best way of solving some problem that they that they genuinely cared about and thought was really important. And they would also express the frustration of having to choose between those two investor sets. And so um, uh, literally because we couldn't find investors that we really loved and felt aligned with, decided to be that investor ourselves.
1: Yeah, I love that you're able to to build the fund based on your own experience as an entrepreneur. I want to pass it off to Chaz now who is going to ask more about the fund Genesis.
2: So Seth, now that you've found your way to the venture world, um, can you talk about kind of the the early days of 50 years, you you know, you want to be an impact investor now, but that's a pretty wide map to, to traverse. Um, How did you sit down with your partners and identify the problems you really wanted to solve here? This
0: was an interesting adventure for us. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, we knew we wanted to start a firm that supported entrepreneurs solving, quote unquote, the world's biggest problems. Um, and so, of course, that begs the question of what are the world's biggest problems? Um, and so one of the first things we set out to do was literally map them all out. That must have been some fun late nights. <laughs> fun, fun and frustrating late nights um, because it turned out that that's a hard problem. <laughs> uh, and uh, so but we were trudging through making a list. And then after probably a few weeks of this, we started to realize that our list reminded us of something. And we were like, wait, wait hold on a second. This this we've seen this before. What, is, what have, where have we seen this? And it turns out that another organization, the United Nations, had gone through this exact practice uh, over many years, uh, spending many millions of dollars with input from many thousands of people um, and actually put together a list of the world's biggest problems uh, and and goals for solving them. And this is called the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, And that list, while not perfect, uh, is pretty darn good. Um, And so we decided as a fund to basically adopt the sustainable development goals as our rough list of what the world's biggest problems are. Um, uh, now, you know, it's not a perfect list. There's clearly some areas where you can see the politics of the United Nations seeping in and there are some problems that we think are really big deals that aren't on there. Um, but I would say 85% is pretty, pretty on point. And so, and so that is uh, our guiding light
2: in terms of what problems we want to solve in the world. No kidding, um, that's, a, that's a small little coincidence there. Um, great to see that uh, such an organization like that um, gave you the, the roadmap for 50 years. That's fantastic to see. Thank you, UN. <laughs> um, so when you talk about kind of now you've found these problems to solve, um, you're still going kind of about building a new VC fund in the Valley. While the, the ethos is different and the focus is now clear, what are some of the values you wanted your fund to embody and um, how did you kind of create those in a goal of being a long-term kind of enduring VC? Yeah, so we think a lot
0: about values and, 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 and culture. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have a, a, a mission just like our portfolio founders have a mission, right? So the, the mission of 50 years is to solve the world's biggest problems through technology entrepreneurship. Um, obviously, that's a very lofty goal. Uh, and as any good mission is probably not fully achievable, but it gives us a guiding light. Um, uh, and, and there's predominantly two ways that we do that currently. One is by finding entrepreneurs that are on that path and supporting them with our cash and our networks and our advice and our, and our, and our our labor. Um, and the other way, which is sort of a more meta way, um, is to try and convince the broader capital markets that these companies that are solving these big problems are actually really great investments from a purely financial perspective, uh, right? So I I, I don't need to convince you because I know uh, Alex believes in this. Um, but you know the vast majority of capital markets have a suspicion of companies that have some sort of positive impact baked into their business models, right? Because they, they view any sort of impact company as necessarily concessionary. Um, and this, of course, is, is not the case, um, and we can talk about that later if you want, but, but those are the two primary ways that we are out to achieve that. Um, and so in terms of, 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 of values, um, you know, for us, it's always really, really important that we, uh, that we put the mission of, the, of, of 50 years uh, on equal footing with the business model um, because if we lose one or the other, we, we won't achieve our, our goals. Um, one of the most important uh, cultural norms for us is, is fat. We we call it founders first. Um, and you know, one of the things that is important there is maintaining high founder empathy. Uh, and this is one way in which I think culture of the firm is really important. Um, you know, we all have naturally high founder empathy because we've all been founders ourselves, right? We know what that journey is like, but we worry all the time, uh, that the longer we're on this side of things, the VC side, um, you know, the higher, the risk that we lose that founder empathy. Um, And so uh, we've thought a lot about how do we sort of uh, build in norms to the organization, uh, cultural norms, where we um, never lose that founder empathy. And and, and so one super eccentric thing I think that we do um, is we actually have a list of VC terms uh, that are are banned. Um, and, And these are some some of these terms are very, very common terms because we think that they, they naturally pull us away from, from founder empathy. So for instance, um, we do not talk of deals or deal making. Uh, and why is that? Even though, you know, of course, the, the common term for a, an investment around is called a deal. Um, well, we noticed that when we would hear a VC say, oh, we saw that deal, right? And we passed on that deal. Um, it didn't reflect the experience uh, of our founder as well. Right? So we literally have a couple founders that have started their companies because a parent died of some disease. Um, and, and they have dedicated their life to making sure that other people don't lose parents to that disease. Right. They've dedicated their lives to finding a cure. Um, and, and to reduce that life's mission to like, Oh, a deal that we passed on just didn't seem right. Um, and so, you know, we just don't use the word deal. Also the word markup, right? So in, in VC lingo, if you uh, and, uh, partner with a company and, and at a certain valuation, they raise the next round at, at a 3X valuation, you know, say, oh, great, we got a markup. Um, but we don't, we don't use the word markup because we think just by celebrating uh, a new round that way, we're, we're necessarily bringing the perspective of that new round into like our own financial performance versus why that new round is great for the founder or great for the company. Um, and so we have a list of probably 16 of these banned words and phrases and then you know, the are the, replacements for them. And every time uh, someone uh, on our team uses one of those words or phrases internally, uh, it's a ten dollar fee, and every time we use one externally, it's a twenty dollar fee. And we've got, and then we're going to use that money to buy gifts for our founders. And I think we've got maybe hundred and ten bucks now, uh, in in, in, a, in a jar at, at headquarters. Um, so that's just that's, that's one way that's in, awesome. I love, <laughs> in which we try and uh, make sure we're not losing
2: sight of of a cultural norm that's really important to us. That's terrific, Seth. Thanks for uh, for sharing that. Um, and and now that you've been on the VC side for a few years, kind of talking about some of how you are maintaining that founder empathy. Um, I'm also curious to know what you've learned in the VC side, kind of any unexpected maybe benefits or challenges kind of working with companies in the impact space after a couple years here? You know, I think that there are a lot of unique benefits working with
0: companies in the impact space. I would say there are a couple of unique challenges. The benefits are, are, are myriad, right? I mean, as you know, one of the things that great investors do is oftentimes you're, you're going and trying to help fill a key role either by trying to fill the top of the funnel or by getting on the phone with a candidate who's on the fence and just trying to close them. And being able to play up uh, a truly important mission of a company um, is, it almost feels like a cheat code when when recruiting those people, right? Um, Because if you can take someone out of some, you know, Facebook or Google or wherever, where they're making a ton of money, but they don't really feel very aligned with what they're working on every day um, and say, hey, do you want to, literally save lives? Or do you want to uh, help prevent, you know, the fires that are causing smoke to waft into your uh, into your home every day? Um, that's really meaningful. Um, and, and I think that also applies to things like um, getting press. It, it applies to things like getting customers and retaining customers. And there's a whole host of ways in which working with um, impact companies is easier because of their impact mission. There are a few ways that it's harder. I think that Primary way it's harder is that there uh, this sort of skepticism in the broader market that if a company has an impact mission, um, <clears throat> it must necessarily then be a sort of concessionary investment, um, and we think that this is just really uh, a totally misguided um, misguided idea. But it's it's pretty well rooted, largely because historically impact investing has been concessionary, right? So almost the definition of impact investing historically has been, we're willing to trade financial performance for some sort of impact, uh, in- impact outcome. Um, and I think there's a new breed of investors that are saying, no, actually there's, there's no need for it to be concessionary. And in fact, those, those two things, impact and profit can feed into each other, right? Um, and having an impact mission can make you more profitable and the ability to be more profitable can help you achieve your impact and these things act as an accelerant to each other, um, but there have not been many funds that have had many years of performance investing in those types of companies. Um, and so oftentimes there's just a general skepticism that, oh, if a company's doing good and if, founder, if the founders really care about doing good, then maybe I'm not gonna make a huge return here. Um, and you know I'm happy to say that the first five years, at least of, of 50 years on paper, um, we have some good data to show that that's not the case, but um, you know there, there needs to be uh, several funds that are partnering with these type of companies that have had good performance over ten years before the broader markets
2: really get convinced. Interesting to hear you mention um, kind of the external forces uh, kind of moving against impact tech when there 's just so many catalysts going for it it 's interesting to see and with that in mind, um, you partner with these companies very early, Seth, uh, at the seed stage often. As many (laughs) VCs and founders know, it's not always a linear course. Um, (laughs) And to stay on track, uh, sometimes you need a pivot. Um, How do you kind of work through a pivot with a founder and having these kind of impact aspirations in mind, um, does that help you guide someone one way or another? Or do you trust that at the end of the day, the founder will kind of, maintain a true course to impact? Um, curious, if that factors in all your decisions or just your yeah, philosophy? Yeah, that's a great there? question. And it, it absolutely factors in. So, I mean, when we, um, there's a
0: number of things we look for in, 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 in founders, obviously we have a whole, whole list, but um, two things that are really important to us at a very high level. One is that the founders genuinely care about the impact mission, right? Um, and that they're not, for instance, coincidentally running a company that can have positive impact. Um, I think particularly in the pharma space, Uh, you can find companies, um, that if successful will be massively good for the world, right? Because they're bringing new therapeutics curing disease. But if you really probe the, uh, the motivation of the founders, you'll find that they're just doing it because they think they're going to get rich. Right. Um, and so we, we, we avoid, uh, those founders that are coincidentally running companies that can be really good for the world. Um, and we also avoid founders that don't also want to get rich. Um, you know, we call them, we call these the goody two shoes. There's obviously nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with someone who just wants to do good in the world, but doesn't actually want to build a massive business. Um, but uh, if, if we partner with a founder that has one of those aspirations, but not the other, we're going to get in trouble, right? And so for us, it's really important that founders both deeply care about the positive impact mission and want to achieve that mission by building a ridiculously profitable business. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to uh, things not being a straight line, you know, they never are, right? I think my, my, you know, f- favorite um, uh, uh, description of this is, 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 you know, Ben Horowitz, and, and he, you know, describes these WIFIO moments, you know, we're fucked, it's over. Um, and he <laughs> says that uh, successful companies, he's never seen a successful company that didn't have between, I think he says, two and 15 WIFIOs, right? And these are moments where everyone kind of looks around the table and says, you know what, we're done, it's over, we, we're, there's, no, there's no path forward. <laughs> uh, and every company has at least two of these moments. Um, and at those moments, you know, um, there's a lot of hard choices that you have to make, right? Do, do, you, do you continue along the path? Um, uh, do you see why something wasn't working and can, can navigate around it? Or do you decide that some fundamental core assumptions of the business turned out to be wrong? Um, if it's the first, you know, you just plow forward. If it's the second, this is when you might need to pivot. Um, and, you know, we have had a couple companies that have, you know, done a, a, a Uh, looked in the mirror and done an analysis of their core assumptions and said, you know what, I don't think our core assumptions are correct. Um, And in that case, you have to pivot. And I think the beauty of backing founders that genuinely care about doing good in the world is that um, whatever they pivot to is likely going to be something that we're also super excited to support. Um, uh, And so far, we haven't had any uh, founders that took a turn in the wrong direction, if you will. Um, and we're always, it's always exciting because it's almost like a refounding of the company, right? Where, um, you know, you had this big momentum, you, you had this direction and now you've got to find a new one. Um, and uh, we, it's always a scary time, but it's also a really, really exciting time and helping founders through that is really, really fun.
2: That's, uh, that's exciting to hear, Seth. Um, one of the most, I'd say, exponential areas in impact is life sciences um what you can do with a a human life i think we can all recognize is limitless and the impact that can have well only imagination can tell um and and you all have centered a lot of your 50 years portfolio around biotech and life sciences can you talk about kind of what guides your interests in this space yeah i mean i am just super jazzed about synthetic
0: biology and life sciences uh, right now um when I first got into entrepreneurship, I, I read a lot about um, the sort of, uh, you know, personal computer revolution and um, the, the, you know, the internet revolution, and it feels a lot like the early days of, of both of those times, right? Um, it, you know, it feels a lot like the, the, the 1990s um, in that a lot of the sort of core tools and, and core infrastructure um, has recently or is soon going to be figured out. Um, which means that we should see just an explosion of, uh, of innovation in the space, um, and uh, of course, you know, the beauty of the life sciences is that probably ninety to ninety-five percent of uh, synthetic biology or life science companies are are impacted by their nature, right? Because they're building uh, new ways of treating patients, or diagnosing, or they're um, you know building sustainable methods of production, um, and so uh, for us, it's absolutely one of the most uh, exciting spaces. It, I, I literally have probably 40 tabs open on my <laughs> Chrome right now of, of papers that I, I aspire to, but will probably never read because um, uh, it really just feels like every week uh, there's some uh, incredibly exciting new paper figuring out um, some, some new part of the problem that allows us to you know, increase
2: the speed of a design build test cycle in, in biology, which is just incredibly exciting. Could, could not agree more there. Uh, I, I pinch myself every day that we get to, to live the how we do right now. It feels like the wild, wild west. Uh, we are lucky uh, people. For sure. um, when you approach kind of life sciences, Seth, um, often it's the large kind of East Coast flagship, Third Rock kind of five a.m.s of the world, um, leading a lot of these life science in investments. How do you and your team kind of approach diligence in this area? Curious if you can kind of give a any West Coast funds here a, a friendly word of advice. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's really interesting. in that you know, there, there's
0: there's this industry called you know biotech or biopharma, um, and then there's you know synthetic biology or bioengineering. Um, and, uh, you know, you might, life sciences might be the sort of umbrella word for all of that. Um, and the, the East coast crew, um, is really, really, really good at the traditional biopharma company. Right. And what I mean by that is, Hey, we have, uh, a single therapeutic asset or, uh, you know, a few therapeutic assets. Um, and we're going to take these, uh, into the clinic through FDA, and if they get approved, this is gonna be worth the money, and if, if, if they don't, it's not gonna be worth anything. Um, uh, and, you know, these, these assets could be a small molecule, they could be some biologic, could be some gene therapy. Um, and so they're, they're, they are really, really good at that. Um, and we, we actually don't, we don't even try and compete. So um, the only type of company uh, at the center of the Venn diagram where you know, the three circles are deep tech, meaning you probably need a PhD on the team, Circle number two is path to a billion dollars in revenue if things go well, and circle number three is path to massive positive social or environmental impact. So the intersection of those three is our sweet spot. The only type of company that we won't uh, look at at the intersection of those three circles is a single or multi-asset therapeutic company. Um, however, I would say there's a new breed of uh, uh, of biopharma companies that are that are platform companies, right? So um, these are companies where the um, the things of, of value might be these assets that they crank out, but there's some underlying engine that allows them to over time discover more and more of these valuable assets. Um, and what's really interesting is that, uh, the East coast crew isn't fully comfortable with these type of companies yet. Um, because they don't really understand platforms. Platforms is, is really a West coast. That's a West coast play. Um, And it's also interesting in that there aren't that many West Coast investors that um, understand these companies because the value is not fully in the platform, right? The value is also in the assets that come out of the platform and exactly how you order, you know, those assets and what indications you're you're treating and what the timelines are going to be and all that jazz. And so these companies, while we think are potentially going to be massively disruptive and valuable, are kind of stuck in this in-between space, where on the one side, these East Coast investors are really good at evaluating the assets that are coming out of these companies, but don't really understand the platform, or are comfortable with valuing the platform at all. And the West Coast investors are really comfortable with the platform and valuing platforms, but don't really understand what these assets things that are coming out are like, what's the deal with those? Um, and, and so uh, these are the type of companies that uh, at least in the therapeutic space, we are super excited about. Um, so how do you go about um, diligencing those companies? So. I'm gonna skip over all the diligence that is like typical to any company, right? Like, are the founders really, really great? Are they driven? Are they gritty? Do they care? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm gonna skip over uh, the, uh, you know, is there a big market? All that jazz. Uh, I think that's pretty standard. Um, and so I'll, I'll focus on the areas that are maybe, maybe unique. So one, of course, is the, the, the technology diligence, right? So at, at some point, you know, you say, oh, wow, I love these founders. I love the vision of this company. I love this market. Um, uh, but you know, typically, when we partner with the company, it's at the pre-seed or seed stage, right? So it's, it's typically just the founders with some janky prototype that works in a lab, but that hasn't necessarily created any commercial value. And then we need to evaluate, you know, can they build what they think they can build uh, in a reasonable timeline? And so for that, we, we, we will typically do a review of the literature ourselves, right, internally as a team. So we'll read all the relevant papers. We'll take notes, we'll confront the founders with what we've learned, and basically what we're looking for there is no surprises. We don't, we don't wanna surprise founders with after five hours of our own research with something that they weren't aware of, right? So you know, if we say, hey, you know, it looks like Christina Smolke is working on this, uh, you know, what do you think about that? And they go, oh, Christina Smolke is working on it? I didn't know that, that's, that's bad, <laughs> right? What we wanna hear is, oh yeah, we know she's working on it, here's why we think our approach is better, and by the way, we're recruiting her lead postdoc. Um, and so if, if there's basically, okay, thumbs up, no surprises, we didn't learn anything in five hours, they didn't already know, then we'll always bring in um, an outside expert to do a technical diligence. Um, so our favorite way of doing that, and we've learned this over time, we didn't, we didn't realize this when we got started, is that the best person to do these technical diligences are founders that have a PhD in the discipline. Um, why is that? Well, we found that um, if you go to who you'd expect to go to, say like a professor in the space, professors are overly conservative, right? They will see all the ways this thing shouldn't work and they'll focus on that. They'll, they'll over-index on the fact that this is not how the field works, right? This is just not how people do it. And of course it's like, yeah, of course it's not how people do it. They're trying to figure out a new way of doing it. Um, and, and, and therefore the analysis they will give will only highlight the problems and not the narrow path that might work. And of course, if you're an early stage venture firm, it's the narrow path that might work that really counts, right? Because you're not trying to, you're not trying to cap your, your downside, you're trying to optimize the upside. Whereas if you bring in a, a PhD who's also an entrepreneur, they will have the deep technical expertise to figure out all of the challenges, but they're far more likely through the optimism of a founder to say, but you know what? Like this is gonna be hard, but if this goes right and math goes right, this could work. Um, and at the end of the day, if we're backing companies where if they build it, it's gonna be massively valuable, we're very comfortable with backing that company if we think there's only a 15% chance that the technology can work. And that's the beauty of venture, right? Because we're going to be backing 30 of these companies in each of our funds, right? And so we're actually really comfortable taking a decent amount of technical risk because if we back 30 companies, all of which have a 15% chance of building what they want to build, and and if it's true that if they build it, it will be massively valuable, we're gonna do really, really well. Um, and so, so we always bring in someone ideally who's a founder in the space to do technical diligence and basically what we wanna figure out is is there a 15% or greater chance that they're able to build this within a reasonable timeline. Sometimes if we can't find a founder in the space, we'll have to reach into academia and find a, you know, a PhD or postdoc um, to do it. And then the other, interest, the other sort of unique thing to diligence is, okay, cool platform, what are you pointing it at when, right? because oftentimes, the issue with these platforms is there's so many things you could do with them uh, that uh, you, you know if you try and focus on all of them at once, you'll not succeed in any, um, and ordering the indications you go at is incredibly important, right? Um, and there's a whole sort of calculus that goes into that, and so pr- predominantly, what we, wanna, um, what we wanna answer is have the founders thought through that um, well um, and, and we don't even know that they've come to the right conclusions. We just want to know that they have a good rubric for going about that analysis.
2: That's awesome, Seth. Thanks for the, the details behind the scene in your process. They're, uh, very illuminating. I think, uh, some people be stealing some play- pages out of your playbook rightfully so there. Uh, so Seth, you've been talking about platforms here, the face of kind of modern day biopharma. I think we both can agree is certainly changing here. Um, What do you think the next kind of unicorn therapeutic company looks like? Uh, can you kind of give us a behind the scenes, uh, preview there?
0: Yeah. So there's, there's a, uh, an approach to therapeutic development that we're particularly excited about, um, these days. Um, and I think we're, we might see it across a number of different modalities. Um, and so the, you know, the current paradigm of drug discovery is you try and understand, analyze the, the biology of some disease, um, you figure out some targets, uh, you create a library that should hit those targets. You, you know, you spin up a cell line in vitro, hit those cells. You find some things that look like they work. Then you take them into mouse models uh, and pray to God that uh, they don't kill the mouse and that they work in the ma- and that they work in the mouse. And oftentimes they don't. In which case, you got to go back to the drawing board. And now you've lost a ton of time, ton of money. Um, it's super expensive. It's super cruel because you're you're obviously using a lot of an- animals for this. Um, and it's one of the reasons that the. Pharma business model is, is struggling um, and so there's a new breed of companies that are basically saying what if we can just skip that whole in vitro step what, what if we can find a way to you know in multiplex um, test therapeutics in vivo right so you can just find uh, the most relevant animal model um, and instead of having to test one you know uh, drug at a time what if we can figure out a way of testing 100 uh, 500 a 1, At a time. Um, If you could do this, it would obviously be way better (laughs) because um, you can test things in a much more um, uh, relevant information space because you're actually testing things in uh, a relevant animal model immediately. Um, So you'd save time, you'd save money, less animals would be needed, um, and you should be able to you know radically increase the pace of drug development. You also, by the way, might be able to unlock sort of like reverse target discovery, right? So you might be able to not have to go through that first step of analyzing the biology of the disease to find a hit. You might just be able to find something that works um, directly. Um, and so we think that there's going to be companies um, that are able to unlock this in protein therapeutics in uh, in gene therapy and in a few different modalities. Um, and that it will hopefully in the next, in 10, 15 years become the the default way of going about drug discovery. Um, And and if you can unlock this, in each modality, there's a $100
2: billion company to be built there. That's fascinating, Seth. Um, Definitely can agree the the multitude and complexity, but also potential that is platforms. Uh, So Seth, um, let's flash forward here. We, we, We have some of these platform companies we're talking Kind of up and off the ground, the the North star that many consider to be recursion is approved through the clinic, rocking and rolling, and the floodgates open. Describe kind of what is 2050 and where will biotech be
0: yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna take guest privilege here and define biotech as, as bioengineering more broadly. Um, so I think that we will uh, see the predominant paradigm of drug development being um, high-throughput, you know, multiplex, collect a bunch of data in incredibly relevant models, and then use uh, machine learning to make sense of what's happening to find relevant and safe therapeutics. Um, in 2050, I could even imagine a world um, in which uh, we are skipping all of the in vitro and animal models altogether and taking, say, a library of known-to-be-safe protein therapeutics and screening them directly in a patient. I know that sounds crazy, but 2050 is pretty far, pretty far away. Um, and, and that is a sort of science fiction future that I am super, super excited about. Um, I also think that, in general, we will see um, most massive industries uh, having been reinvented um, by bioengineering. Um, you know, I, I think one of the industries that we are personally most uh, keen on that happening to is the food system. Uh, if you look at something like, um, you know, meat production, uh, 10,000 years ago, Homo sapiens uh, began domesticating animals for, uh, you know, meat, milk, and hides. Um, and that's, an, that's, a, that's a production method that while it has increased in scale, has not really changed at all in 10,000 years you know, back when our ancestors started domesticating goats in Mesopotamia. Um, You know, we basically selectively breed animals with traits we want. We feed them for months to years. Uh, We then kill them, and then we cut them up uh, to get the, you know, to make beef, pork, chicken, turkey, gelatin, whatever. Um, And so, you know, functionally, we're using animals as production technology to take plant protein inputs and convert them into outputs that we like to eat, drink or wear. We think that that is something in 2050 people will look back on and just think is absolutely insane, right? People will say, wait a minute, to make meat, you birthed a mammal and grew that mammal for two years and then you killed it and cut it up. Why didn't you just grow the meat directly? Um, and now, thanks to companies like Memphis Meats, which is doing this for meat, or Geltor, which is doing this for gelatin, or Vitro Labs, which is doing this for leather, um, you know, I do think that we are on a path to being able to make products that we typically make through animals directly through biology itself. Um, and that is a future we are incredibly
2: excited about. Wow. Be beyond excited right, right there with you, my friend, uh, holding on for the ride. Um, but I, I think that one maybe key critical era that we're going through right now, um, be it rather unfortunately, but hopefully on the, the back end, we'll boast some silver linings here is the, the COVID crisis uh, yeah. and the role that that will play in, in 2050, uh, I think is a, a strong catalyst for bringing some of those innovations uh, in the long-term to the near-term. Uh, we'll hand it over to my my colleague Jess here uh, to to go further on that topic.
1: Yeah, thanks Chaz. I guess- Following off of that, Seth, you mentioned that your goal and 50 years mission generally is identify and solve all of the world's hardest problems. And now one of the most pressing problems of our time is, of course, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. When COVID began, you were one of the first funds known to really roll up your sleeves, act, and use technology as a, a catalyst for change. Could you tell us more about the 50 years COVID response?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so- we 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 actually my partner and I went to a, a dinner um, with David Baker and Neil King um, and Venod Kostla and Steve Jervis. Steve was kind enough to invite us um, right at the end of February. And 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 they basically said, you know, two thirds of people are going to get this, uh, and that was a huge wake up call for us because at that point, I'll admit we we hadn't been thinking about it at that scale. Um, and so we you know immediately started calling our companies that might be able to uh, contribute to the effort to say, hey, this is going to be a pretty big deal. Um, uh, You know, if you can contribute, you should do so. Um, And because it really felt like to us, um, you know, an all hands on deck moment, it felt like our World War II. And I don't think that's a super dramatic comparison because um, the scale of the threat, if nothing was done, was quite similar with many of the middle of the road epidemiological models, you know, putting the potential death toll of COVID-19 in the the tens of millions. Right. Right. And uh, if you look at what happened during World War II, uh, the technology community rallied like never before to win that cause. Um, And to Chaz's point about this being an accelerant, if you look at what came out of that World War II technology effort, we got uh, the mass production of antibiotics. We got blood plasma as a therapeutic for the first time. We got skin grafts. We got uh, immunizations. The first flu vaccine came out of that effort. We got radar, the microwave oven, we got pressurized plane cabins, nuclear power. We got the first programmable digital computer, right? So the effort to win World War II laid the foundation of technical progress for years to come. And I think we've seen similar energy in combating COVID. And I hope that we will see a similar acceleration of the the very foundation of the bioengineering industry. And so we're super uh, excited uh, to see what comes of this I mean, you know we 're super proud that seventeen of our companies um, are addressing covid nineteen in some way shape or form, everything from scaling up testing to developing vaccines to, to, to literally developing more hand sanitizers um, uh, and and so that 's been inspiring to see but we 're also Inspired by by what will come next, right? So what company out of this will bring the development of vaccines Down from years to months, right? What scientists will figure out how to repurpose drugs? Um, super fast uh, to be, to bring new therapy development down from months to weeks um, you know this whole tragedy tragedy is an opportunity to build infrastructure that makes us stronger and more resilient uh, over the decades to come
1: yeah, that's really great. And I love the optimistic outlook that you have that in times of crisis, really, we can truly accelerate innovation. And going off of your, your previous point about different technology being developed in this time, what are kind of the north stars that you're looking to in this crisis for hope that will be particularly impactful?
0: We have a company called Helix Nano that's developing mRNA vaccines, um, and they have accelerated. I mean, they were moving fast before this crisis, but they have accelerated their, uh, their development of their technology. I, it feels like 50 fold. Um, and I can't share some of the, the data that they're getting, but it makes me incredibly optimistic. Um, we have a company, Opentrons, uh, which helps labs automate their testing. They are now uh, powering a huge amount of Uh, COVID-19 tests per day. Um, We have a company, uh, Octant, uh, that helped develop this technique called SwabSeek, which is now being scaled up to millions and millions of tests. Um, uh, We have a company called 54Gene that is powering basically COVID testing throughout uh, uh, um, uh, all of Nigeria and expanding to much of Africa. So, I mean, there's a lot to be uh, uh, excited about. Um, And I I still think we, we won't know um, what technology has been built that will have non-COVID applications quite yet, right? Because we're still in the crisis. But, um, you know, if you look at World War II, we actually found a really cool story. There's this, um, you know, we, we know, obviously, Kaiser uh, in California, it's a, a huge healthcare care system. Uh, well, Henry Kaiser um, was known as the father of American shipbuilding. He was a shipbuilder. And during World War II, uh, it took about 365 days to build a new naval warship. Uh, Obviously that's not great if you're uh, gearing up for war. And so the government challenged uh, shipbuilders to build ships faster. Um, And Henry Kaiser brought that down to five days. And he did this with this really clever technique of building different parts of the ship in different distributed factories and then bringing them all together and essentially kind of snapping them together uh, on the shipyard. Um, And of course this helped uh, the United States win the war but it also helped Henry Kaiser build an incredible shipbuilding business after the war. Uh, he then expanded to Kaiser aluminum and then Kaiser steel, and eventually Kaiser Permanente, one of the largest healthcare systems in California. And so we think that there will be a whole bunch of companies that um, developed technology um, to address this crisis that, and, and that, that development and that, that R and D will end up being a foundation of amazing businesses that cause all sorts of, positive societal impact in, in years to come.
1: Certainly, and I'm, I'm excited to see what interesting companies come out of this. I think we talked about WIFIO moments during exactly. um, the earlier part of this call and, and COVID, talk about a WIFIO moment in terms of companies that have to address the onset of the pandemic, but also yeah. looking forward to what happens after and how do, you, how do you adapt to a post-COVID world and what does that mean? Do you, I'm curious, if, as much as you're comfortable saying, do you have any interesting anecdotes about a specific pivot or, or WIFIO moment that you yourself or have, have witnessed in the time of the pandemic?
0: <laughs> well, we, I can give you one for 50 years in particular. So, we, um, so we're on our third fund now, and we actually uh, sent out, uh, we're due to have our first close of our third fund um, in mid-March. <laughs> and we sent out our documents for the first close of our third fund uh, the day the New York Times had their first you know dramatic uh, headline and graph of the unemployment numbers bursting to the top of the page and you know, Headline of something like America in crisis doctor sound alarm uh, And you know the, the next day was when San Francisco um, You know put in place the shelter-in-place order and so we sell, we sent out our documents to our uh, LPS this was all to existing LPS um, and, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a $40 million first close and literally five minutes after sending the documents, the first two responses were LP is sort of panically saying, I'm so sorry. Like, uh, you know, we're still really excited about the fund, but uh, we have no idea what's happening with the economy. We, we can't, we can't participate in this close. Please keep us apprised of future closes. And so we were like, Oh my God. Right. We, and, and we we went to bed thinking we're probably going to wake up tomorrow and have every single LP say, are you crazy? I cannot possibly close right now. Right? And this is when the economy was just in complete freefall. So luckily it didn't turn out to be a WIFIO. Uh, <laughs> those were the only two LPs uh, out of the ones we sent it to that ended up having that response and the rest came in and closed. But Um, You know, it definitely became a a much, much, you know, harder race for us because um, people's hair was on fire. And and so, you know, first close was was smaller than we expected and all that jazz. But, you know, we've pushed through and for us, we're grateful because now we we know that we will never complain about how hard a future fundraiser is because nothing could possibly top trying to collect money while the, the global economy is in complete free fall. And there is a pandemic uh, roaming the globe um, uh, uh, and and no one knows, you know, when it's going to where it's going to end.
1: What an amazing story. Thanks so much for sharing. And again, I love your very optimistic outlook. We got through the hopefully, fingers crossed, the hardest part. And now we have smoother sailing ahead, we hope.
0: People call me a serotonin factory. And so, you know, obviously this, this, <laughs> this pandemic has been, uh, you know, tragic in, in many, many ways. And, and many, many people have, have lost friends and family. Um, but, you know, I, my, my disposition is always to, to see how um, uh, a challenge might actually make people stronger and might actually move the world forward. And so um, I, am, I am actually really optimistic that um, though this has caused incredible adversity, we, we will emerge from it stronger and, and, and
2: better prepared for the next one.
1: Yeah, I admire that mentality
2: so much. Seth, thanks, thanks for being a, a beacon of hope for us in these, these crazy times That Serotonin Factory is uh, <laughs> definitely a much-needed uh, jolt to the arm there. Um, when we talk kind of about today's podcast and kind of re- reflect on the topics you've gone through, um, we've, we've moved through <laughs> quite, quite a bit of ground here. I wanted to recap now that we've talked kind of about 50 years and your ethos and establishing one of the true leaders in the impact tech space. Where do you see impact VC going, Seth? And now that you'll blaze the trail, what do you hope followers behind you uh, kind of pick up as far as Nuggets wisdom?
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's a short-term answer and a long-term uh, answer. So I mean, sh- short-term, um, I-, I-, I hope that uh, we and and other firms like us are just able to support great founders that are building. Businesses that the world genuinely needs, right, and help those founders go go faster and farther and, and achieve their missions. Um, and then, you know, longer term, um, you know, we would love to be known as one of the groups of people uh, that helped shift the world away from the Friedman doctrine, right? So the Friedman doctrine is this doctrine put forward by Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman uh, in a 1970 op-ed in the New York Times, called the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. Uh, and this doctrine basically says that the goal and the sole goal of a business should be profit maximization. You should read this essay. It really reads like a parody of itself. He literally says that a, a business man, and of course he says businessman, a businessman that thinks about anything beyond pure profit. And he says, for instance, the good of the environment or the welfare of their employees or the health of their customers. He says, businessmen that think about those things are undermining the basis of free society. And it sounds crazy, but that's how people have thought about business uh, in the Western world for the last 50 years. Um, And so long-term, we would love to be one of the groups that helps shift the world away from the Friedman Doctrine and towards a more inspiring conception of business that's about both profit generation and real positive social or environmental impact.
2: Thank you again, Seth, for for coming on our podcast today. Uh, Great to share your insights with the BIOS community and so appreciate the words, the wisdoms and the, and the path that you're blazing that is uh, 50 years. Uh, thanks again, my friend. Appreciate your participation today and excited to uh, collaborate in the years to come. Thank you, Chaz. And thank you, Jess. This was fun.
0: Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please
1: leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.